Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Brown Baby Podcast, Meredith Broussard and your own Minecraft server. I am your host, Nick Eshukla, and I'm so pleased you're joining me. You're enjoying me? You're joining me for this super special episode. I could just edit out these fluffs, but that's just not my true authentic self. Um, before I tell you more about Meredith Broussard and how amazing she is and you listen to our talk, I just wanted to check in and say hello and hi. I hope you're well. Obviously, schools are going back at the moment. I'm grateful that my kids are so excited about seeing their friends and being out of this house. And I'm grateful for the time to do stuff. I guess my big worry is COVID, obviously, and what our kids going back to school will do to the already high numbers in the UK. I'm not saying any of this to grandstand or make any political point. All I'll just say is, God, it's so hard. My kids love going in and they get so much out of it currently. I mean, things will change in the years to come, I'm sure. And I'm so glad to see that they love it but the numbers are what they are and thus my anxiety is what it is so however you're feeling whatever you're feeling about any of this it's okay it's totally okay you definitely don't need to project onto yourself how others feel i'm saying this more to myself than to you guys okay so to t- today's episode it's with the writer and academic Meredith Broussard. She is a data journalist and associate professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute of New York University and she is research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology and she is the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Her work focuses on artificial intelligence in investigative recording and ethical AI with particular interest in using data analysis for social good. She appeared in the amazing 2020 Netflix documentary Coded Bias, which is all about how technology can never be uh, free of the gaze of the people who have written the code. And it's just really, really amazing. Her essays and her features have appeared in the Atlantic, the New York Times, Slate and other places. We met in Jaipur a couple of years ago and it was our first time away from our kids. And we just both bonded over that and talked a lot about technology and our kids. And her book just blew my mind. I thought she was extraordinary and such an important thinker when it comes to technology and the coded gaze and AI. Okay, so we talk about... Um, how she built her kid a Minecraft server, our fears about digital footprints and a hopeful vision of what a healthy relationship with social media can look like. Uh, She talks about data. She talks about her work in AI and exactly what coded bias is. And it's a fascinating episode. Um, Yes. So 
Please buy Meredith's book, uh, which is Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. And please buy my book, Brown Baby, A Memoir of Race, Family and Home. Um, This is a podcast about parenting and it asks the question, how do we raise our kids to be joyful in bleak times that make us so sad and angry? And this week's guest is definitely someone who is trying to build a better future. And I'm really excited for you because I think this is a really hopeful episode. And um, yeah, so season two, episode six, Brown Baby podcast, Meredith Broussard. Welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast, Meredith Broussard. How are you doing today? It's very nice to see your face. It's been a long time. I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man. I feel really guilty about the last time we saw each other because I, you came to a gig I was doing and you came just as I was leaving to rush to the airport and I felt so bad that I'd made you come all the way across town on a Sunday of all days to, <laughs> to hang out and then I had to go. I've been holding on to that guilt for two years. I'm so sorry. Oh, that is so kind of you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I just thought you bailed on me because you didn't want (laughs) to hang out. Um, But I did end up hanging out at the very cool party, uh, the very cool after party at your reading, which was so fun. So thank you uh, for that invitation. And I did end up having a lovely time. I would have made it worse. Um, So... <laughs> We're going to have to get together in real life next time you're in the city. Yes, definitely. And we'll have a raging good time to compensate. Yes, please. I've got a year and a half's worth of not having had raging good times to catch up on, so I would love that. Uh so I I Fabulous. came across your work uh when we met at Jopa Literature Festival a couple of years ago and feel like it was our first big trips away from our kids at the time and so we really bonded over like wanting to have fun but also feeling so guilty that we had to constantly check in and obviously since then uh, I've read your amazing book Artificial Unintelligence and you were featured on the amazing documentary Coded Gaze and you know given that this is all stuff that we're talking about at the moment AI and the coded gaze the white male gaze uh, the the sort of the dangers of uh, automation that kind of comes from very specific lenses and you are so at the forefront of those conversations i wonder how does how does that affect your kids relationship with technology do you feel like do you feel like they are do, uh, do you feel like your kid is like very wary of technology or you know, do you have like quite a strict relationship with it with it with them so i have always talked with my kid about technology And I have always been the weird mom who uh, doesn't let him uh, do all of the things that the other kids are allowed to do. Uh, And so, for example, when all the other kids were at seven years old playing on public Minecraft servers, I said, no, you can't play on the public Minecraft server. I will make you your own Minecraft server that you can invite your friends onto but you cannot play with the weirdo randos at seven years old on the public servers. So I've always felt like it's important to to know all of the dimensions of the technology that my kid is playing with, not because I want to be a helicopter parent and be all up in his business, but because there are crazy people Mm. out there. So the way that I think about it is that uh, 
going into something like a public Minecraft server is like sending your kid into a playground. And at seven, I wouldn't send my kid into a playground uh, unsupervised when there's a bunch of strangers mm. in there. Like I would go in with him, but I would let him play in the backyard with his friends, uh, you know, in our fenced in backyard when we had one. Uh, and I wouldn't feel the need to, uh, to hover over him. So the things that I would do, or the things I would permit as a parent in the digital world are the same things that I would permit as a parent in the real world. And I think it's really important to make, uh, to be an informed parent about the technology that your kids are using and also to have really consistent rules online and offline. Uh, and how do you, how do you manage what information he shares or online? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think I just always told him don't share stuff. And then he didn't. I, uh, he's, uh, He's not really on social media. Uh, he's more of a video game kid than a social media kid. Um, possibly because I spend a lot of time on social media and I don't play video games. So, <laughs> so video games are the one place where his parents <laughs> are not. Uh, but we've always had very <laughs> frank conversations about what does it mean to have an online presence? Uh, and mm. we've had really frank conversations about privacy. Uh, and I do, I was going to say, I do write about him, but I actually don't write about him very much. Uh, I wrote about him when he was little. The writer Calvin Trillin once said that he wrote about his kids until they were about five. And then he stopped until they were of an age where they could give consent to be written about. Uh, and I always thought that mm. was a really good guideline because kids are pretty undifferentiated until about five. Like they're kind of a, you know, just like a big blob of generic kid. And then around five is when they sort of develop a personality and they develop, uh, they kind of differentiate. Uh, and so after five, I felt like my kid has a right to kind of know what I'm writing about uh, if it involves him and he gets right mm. of approval or refusal. Uh, he has the same thing on social media. Like I ask him before I post a picture or write something on social media. That's really, that's really great. I, yeah, I, I, I think I'm with um, Calvin on this uh you know because my with my memoir i write about the first five years of being a parent but i kind of i've created i've constructed a character out of my two kids and and now that you know one of them is old enough to be at school and the other one is aware that there are people in her life who are not in my life who are, who are reading this book and all the rest of it it, it feel it makes sense to me to kind of just hold it down a little bit but i, re I really remember um when the first person in our in our kids friendship group had a kid they set up a facebook account for that kid to basically have as they grew up and then everyone was encouraged to like add tag this kid in photos over the years so that they would have like a living document of this kid online and i remember feeling incredibly uncomfortable with that because 
you know, you you don't know what's going to happen to these relationships over the years. First of all, secondly, that kid has no consent to to be part of this, or, and it may not even be something that they end up wanting. I mean, obviously, like Facebook is now the the kind of the last bastion of the sixty yeah. year old racists who want to spread. <laughs> it's the evil empire now. Theories, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's run by Palpatine. Um, the but I, I just that that idea of um your kids consent on the internet is a really really yeah. interesting well one, and like the idea that a kid would would have to consent right and so i think when you when you have a kid especially when it's your first kid and you feel like you don't really know what you're doing and there's this you know new world of social media i mean it's not so new anymore but like when my kid was mm. little it was kind of new to have kids on the internet or like write about your kids on the internet um like it was uh it was the first uh first era of mommy blogging uh and so we really didn't have precedence like we didn't know what was going to happen 10 years down the road mm. because there hadn't been social media for 10 years and now it's pretty clear that okay uh, when your kid's a baby, like everybody loves seeing the baby pictures on social media, whatever platform you're on. And then as your kid gets older, your kid is not at all interested in being featured on you, the parents' social media feed, and then they get mad about it. So like the kid disappears from social media and you know, that's okay. That feels a little normal now. Uh, another thing that I think people uh, often don't realize is that social media platforms have a uh, have a lifespan. So online communities have a lifespan just like uh, in-person communities have a lifespan. You know how you'll have a peer group for a period of time and then it kind of fractures and falls apart? Same thing happens online. Uh, mm. I believe it's about 10 years is considered like a really long lifespan for a uh, for an online community. Uh, so Facebook is you know, is full of six-year-old racists now because, like, it's kind of at the end of its life. Uh, and there are other things. Because they were they were 40-year-olds having a crisis who wanted to connect reconnect with high school sweethearts 20 years ago when they... Yeah, and, Facebook you know, account. more power to all the people who are reconnecting with their high school, uh, high school lovers and, like, getting it on. Like, you know, go for it! That's fantastic. Um, but I also think that people imagine <laughs> that without social media, that kind of thing would have never happened. And it it pretty much would have happened. Like, it wouldn't have been as easy, but it definitely would have happened. Like, there were definitely people getting it on mm. with old lovers back in the day before social media. There will be after social media. Uh, that is a... Uh, you know, that is a perpetual thing. Have no fear. <laughs> uh, I think one of one of the most bizarre, my the most bizarre things that ever happened to me with social media um, was when my mother died uh, just over ten years ago. I'm so uh, sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you. Um, my uncle Facebooked about it like hours after she died before we'd had a chance to tell anyone in, in like the white the wider family and overnight my mum's facebook account became a shrine to her from people who didn't know what had happened had no idea that 
that she had died um or how she had died or any of that kind of stuff and the morning after my mum died my sister and I had this strange situation when we had to kill her on Facebook we had to work out how to take down her Facebook account and this was before you could you had that kind of in case of a in case of death um account person who can who can deal with your digital estate but it it reminded me of like the careless ephemera of of social media it's very easy to say congrats on on a baby picture or on a a wedding anniversary or r.i.p on a on a like a death announcement and it 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 carries no weight and all it does is it it, it's it's a performance of showing up if if anything else because um no one's sort of sitting there dealing with the actual impact of someone's dying and no one is sort of like going around to change nappies armed with four lasagnas to put in the freezer and all the rest of it so it becomes about the kind of the impermanence of social media as a way to connect us and to hold thorough interpersonal relationships that I really worry about mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm actually still really mad at Facebook and <clears throat> I'm mad at, all, at Facebook and all the other social media platforms for that early era of assuming that nobody was ever going to die because they they were so callous about it. And the fact that you had to fight to get control of your loved one's electronic accounts back in the day after they passed was just adding, not even just adding insult to injury, it was just cruel. Mm. Uh, because the rest of the world is set up so that, you know, you, you have the death certificate and you have this sad duty of going and... Uh, and closing up the administrative aspects of your loved one's life. But social media companies just made it so hard. And it was like they didn't believe you that somebody was dead. And they were totally unprepared to deal with uh, this tragedy that is a tragedy, but is also inevitable. I mean, Mm. it's not like... The, this couldn't have been foreseen. You know, mm. you open user accounts and you're going to need to close user accounts. Uh, so I'm still mad about that. Uh, they have never apologized to me for it. Uh, and <laughs> I am holding it against them. <laughs> uh, I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about the amazing work that you do. Um, and I, I wondered if you could just set it up for this can you just tell 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 me about tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming like one of the leading voices on artificial intelligence and um the kind of what's the word i'm looking for the kind of the consequences of of automation that has been designed um to be unbiased but is obviously incredibly biased (laughs) incredibly biased uh the way that i put it uh is i call it techno chauvinism uh, techno-chauvinism is the idea that technological solutions are superior to other solutions, that doing things with technology is better, faster, cheaper. Uh, and instead, what I would argue is that it's about using the right tool for the task. Sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer, like when we're doing something mathematical. And sometimes the right tool for the task is something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on its parent's lap. 
And it's not a competition. One is not better than the other. It's just about what are you trying to do and what's the thing that's going to get you there. Uh, and I've been talking and writing about this for a really long time. Uh, my mm. book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, came out in 2018. Uh, and since then, I've joined the global conversation about AI ethics. And as you kindly mentioned before, uh, there's a new movie called Coded Bias uh, that uh, that is now on Netflix. Uh, and it's full of amazing, amazing women who are doing uh, who are doing all kinds of groundbreaking work in this area. I got into this area uh, not quite by accident, um, but in part because I was pushed out of mainstream computer science. So I've been programming since I was eleven. Uh, when I was eleven, my parents bought us a computer. Uh, they got me a tutor who taught me how to program, and they sent me to computer lessons. Uh, and this was the early days of uh, personal computing. I had, I think, an Apple, some kind of Apple II is what I learned to program on. Uh, and it was terrific, and I had a lot of fun, uh, but I was one of the only kids I knew doing it. And then I went to college, uh, and I studied computer science in English, I graduated, I became a computer scientist, and it was very alienating. So there are all these, uh, all these reasons that women get edged out of STEM careers, of science, technology, engineering, and math careers. And all of the reasons are true. I got edged out. There was nobody who looked like me, uh, who was ahead of me. You know, there are so few black women in technology. There are so few black women in uh, executive levels of technology companies. Tech companies have just abysmal records when it comes to every dimension of diversity. And it has not improved over the course of my career. So I got edged out. Uh, I just couldn't handle it in my 20s. I quit to become a journalist. But I always still loved computer science, and so I came back to it uh, as a data journalist. So data journalism is the practice of finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. Uh, and what I do now is I write code in order to commit acts of investigative journalism. And specifically what I do is I build AI uh, in order to do investigative journalism. But when I first started doing this, I uh, I would say, oh, I would go to a cocktail party and I would say, oh, I build AI. And people would look at me like, what? And they would say things like, okay, so you mean you build robot reporters? I would say, no, that sounds really cool, but that's not what I do. They would say, all right, so you mean you, like, you build a machine that like spits out story ideas? I would say, no, that sounds awesome, but that is not what I do. And I realized that there was a lot you of... This, um... So I was just going to say, you use, uh, in the op opening chapter of the book, you use these really great examples of what we think AI is because of movies of like, and HAL in um, 2001 A Space Odyssey and what AI actually is. Uh, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, there's such a gap, right? Between yeah. what people imagine AI is and what AI actually is. Because when you actually do AI, like, it's pretty fucking boring. <laughs> I love coding, but my God, is it tedious. And the the triumph of coding feels just like when 
you bang your head against the wall just because it feels so good when you stop, right? Like you do have this like burst when, when you figure out a program, you're like, oh my God, I am a God. Like I just (laughs) made this thing incarnate. It feels incredible. But that rush is really short lived because most of the time you're just chasing down stupid fucking little bugs that are like, oh, you know, I had a semicolon in the wrong spot. Oh, I declared a variable of type this and it's supposed to be type that. It's so mundane. Uh, it's the most unglamorous thing possible. Uh, and when you're a data, when you're a data journalist, like a lot of what you're doing is you're doing data janitor work. Everybody's data is so dirty. Like people think that data is so sleek and so elegant, and that you know there's so much data in the world, and we're just going to like take the data, we're just going to use AI on it, and we're going to make this like sleek empirical thing. And honestly, that data is just dirty. It's dirty, it's messy, it's made by people, people screw it up all the time, and basically everything you think about, if you're not making technology yourself, everything you think about how technology is made is totally wrong. Well, the, the, you just said a really interesting thing there that I I just wanted to to shine a spot, spotlight on, because you, you said, you know, a lot of this stuff is often down to human error, but even before we get into... Um, people's unconscious biases for example or people's lived experiences um for example like basic human error is not it's not not a thing that's recognized in this world there is like the you know once once the thing is released you know the it it exists in this sort of perfect bubble um and there's no no thought that um people might have put a semicolon Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes, kids, technology. Um, That's... That's the point of this episode of the podcast. Um, so 
you know, a, a lot of the work that you and, and a lot of those amazing women who are part of the Coded Gaze um, film are talking about is how technology is designed uh, by straight white men for straight white men, uh, straight white well-off men <laughs> of a certain class and uh, socioeconomic bracket from a certain part of the world. Um, and the the dangers of that. And I, I wondered if... I'm just going to throw this out as a very half-formed, ill-thought-out question. Please shoot holes in it if you think it's rubbish. But I wonder what impact that has on kids. Oh, it has a tremendous impact on kids. Uh, One thing I think that uh, you can start with uh, when you're talking to kids about uh, bias in technology is you can start with voice assistance. Uh, Because kids are all familiar with Siri and Alexa and what have you. And they love using voice assistants, which is, you know, which makes sense because it's really cool that you can say something in the world and uh, and then the computer will do something in response to your voice. It's just like, you know, the kind of magic of pushing a button. Like it never stops Mm. being awesome that you can push a button and then something happens like that you have this power in the world but one of the things you can talk to kids about is why are siri and alexa female i when you look at all of the uh personas attached to uh attached to technology they are often coded as male or female and the servant robots are female, like Siri and Alexa. And then the smart robots, like Watson, are male. And, Mm. you know, kids understand that. And yes, you can change the default voice on Siri or Alexa, or the default voice on the GPS in the car, uh, if people even still use GPS in the car. I guess that's kind of an outdated reference. Um, so you, you can change the default voice on a voice assistant, but nobody ever actually does that. Mm. It exists, but it's not a feature anybody takes advantage of. But but it's, it's the same thing all over where that, that a default has been chosen and everything else becomes other to that default which is sort of how the world works you know it's it's how we talk about whiteness being the default for all stories where the assumption is that all characters in stories are white unless it's specified that they're not for um however however it's specified and that defaultness is so pervasive in our culture and you know when you talk about how it's pervasive in technology which is this sort of thing that is constantly reinventing how easy our lives are supposed to get it fills me with such fear because our children are growing up in a world where that the default is that level of automation to make our lives easier but also that you know as you say like the voices on top of those defaults you know it's it is terrifying to me because it Mm -hmm. really doubles down on you know kids of color being othered on girls being othered on and so on and so on and so on. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, we can also think about whose lives are being made easier by technology because it's not everybody's life. 
that's being made easier by technology. Uh, it is generally the lives of those who are pale male Yale folks. And uh, there's also a whole class of ghost workers uh, who are basically the servant class inside the machine. So there are limits to a- what AI can do. And can you, so, when... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Can you just tell me a bit more about those ghost workers? Just Sure. What I mean by ghost workers is I mean the people who pick up the slack when AI fails. Right, okay. I'm with you. And there are limits to what AI can do. Uh, so, for example, on Facebook, uh, when you flag a piece of content as inappropriate, uh, the algorithms look at it and a lot of the time the algorithms can't tell if it's inappropriate or not because it's all about context, right? Uh, and so then it gets sent to an actual person, a commercial content moderator, uh, who mm. is sometimes in the US, sometimes offshore, sometimes the commercial content moderator is in the country where the content is flagged, sometimes they're not. Uh, which leads to all kinds of other problems. But the job of looking at all of the flagged content on Facebook is a terrible job. So you're looking at beheadings, you're looking at violent pornography, you're looking at uh, at just the most horrific filth all day. And it, uh, it has enormous, uh, enormously negative mental consequences for the people whose Jeez. job it is. Uh, when you look at something like the app economy uh, and you look at Uber and Lyft and the other ride-sharing services, the uh, the myth was that this was going to make people uh, more of their own bosses. Everybody's going to be an independent contractor instead of an employee. And instead, we have people being underpaid and exploited. So the... The AI-enabled, the tech-enabled world uh, is really great for some people, and it's really terrible for other people. And you're right that whiteness is the default inside the tech-enabled world. The tech is built for, uh, you know, for privileged, uh, light-skinned people with uh, Wall Street Journal and Oxbridge accents, uh, and it leaves out an enormous chunk of humanity. And I think that's a problem. I don't think that we should turn the world over to uh, automated tools that only work for a certain sector of society. Yeah. I think we should talk to kids about that too, because kids are definitely uh, given the party line that, oh, technology is so great and it's more objective and unbiased which is not true. But mm. if you tell them that, then they'll believe it. And then if they grow up believing it, then they're doing themselves and the rest of the world a great disservice. Yeah, my kid has just started learning to code at, at school. Oh, at good for of, her. Which at the age of six and a half. And what's interesting is I, I wonder if that will do, what that will do for her interest in technology, because um, I know I've said this on another podcast that I recorded this morning uh but she's um she in terms of screens we don't really let them use screens they never have done and and actually they you know whenever there is an opportunity for a screen they get bored with it very quickly 
they're much more into i guess because we read to them and we do a lot of like role play and imagine play they're much more into their own worlds rather than technology um and so they are a little bit out of step with their school friends but i wonder if like now that she's sort of going to be learning how to how to sort of make things happen uh, whether that will increase her um her interest in technology is she doing scratch i i don't know i i don't know you know it's that classic thing where how was school today oh i don't remember daddy what's coding why are you asking me about coding i learned how to code today oh cool what did you do i don't remember you know, it's, yeah it's, it's that kind of it's that kind of conversation on a daily daily yeah. basis well there's a fantastic book called uh code like a girl it's by miriam peskowitz who wrote the book uh who wrote the daring book for girls and the double daring book for girls uh and this is one of my favorite coding books for girls uh and i recommend it to all of the uh all of the middle schoolers who, uh, yeah, all of the, I've recommended to all of the middle school, middle school girls who are interested in technology in any way. It's just, it's a really great entry point. Um, I will tell you a funny story about when my kid learned to code. Um, so I thought that early on that you know, the earlier you introduce kids to coding, the better, because they'll just pick it up the way that, you know, if you speak another language to a kid when they're little, they'll just pick it up. So I, you know, I mean, I knew Scratch and uh, Scratch is this, uh, is this visual programming language out of MIT that has like a cute little cat and it has these blocks that you move around and it's very easy and it's, uh, it's kind of the standard thing that kids learn first nowadays. So I was like, all right, you know, when my kid is really little, he's going to learn scratch. And then I realized, okay, wait, he's got to learn to read first. All right. So he learns to read I'm like, yes. All right. Now we're ready to code. And I set him up in front of the computer and there's all this stuff about clicking with the right mouse and the left mouse. And I realized like, oh wait, he doesn't know his right from his left. And <laughs> even if he does know it, like he's not he's not rock solid on like what happens when you like use your middle finger to click versus when you use your, uh, your index finger to click. And it's really not intuitive that you would use your, uh, you know, that you'd use your middle finger for the right click and your index finger for the left click, because when you use your right hand for something, uh, it's different than using your left hand for something. So this got in the way of learning to code because you really need to know your right from your left and be able to have that fine motor skill uh, in order to use the mouse. And it, it didn't occur to me that using the mouse was like an advanced fine motor skill uh, because I had been doing it for so long. So that was uh, that was a big insight for me. And I realized that kids that, really that have the... to be... Like kids have to have uh, certain levels of physical and cognitive development before they're ready to code. So there's no need to rush into it. And kids get there at totally different rates. I cannot believe that one of the world's leading experts on artificial intelligence and the coded bias displayed her own bias against people who don't know their left and their right with her own child no less yeah it's shocking isn't it <laughs> it's truly shocking 
but but you take you take that small it's a thing good thing blo- it's not illegal to well, yeah, make mistakes but I, yeah but it like I, I think it's such a perfect illustration of like of everything because you take this this small incident you blow it up to like you know the phones that we all have and you think well if this one person just like oh like overlooked this one small detail that was just so innate to her and not necessary to a kid what the fuck does that mean for like what we're carrying around in our pockets every day you know <laughs> means we're all screwed <laughs> so um uh, just because i've got picked my kids up very very shortly and <laughs> not learn about what they did at school um before i ask you the last two questions i ask all my guests i i wanted to know in in your eyes like obviously obviously technology is a wonderful thing that can be used for so much social change and so much good and also like can actually make our lives easier but also it has a really horrific side and i feel like we've only really scratched the surface of this conversation but i wondered and i don't want you to kind of give away too much uh given that this is like a large part of your work that you, that you're being you're being like commissioned to do how should how should our how should we raise our children to be tech aware but also know its um, possibilities as well as its consequences i think that for a very long time people imagined that there was a division between the online world and the offline world and that was Mm. deliberate because the early uh, creators of what they then called cyberspace wanted to make a world that was apart from the regular world. They wanted to make a world that was uh, out of reach of government because they were uh, they were hippies coming off the communes in the 1960s and the communes failed, but they said, oh, there's this world of cyberspace. We're going to uh, launch our experiment there. And, you know, it was great, but that's not actually how the entire world works. And, uh, and you can't have a world without government, without rules. It just doesn't work uh, for large groups of people. So I think that we need to examine that long-held belief and say, screw that. We need to throw it out. And we need to say, all right, as a parent, I need to teach my kid how to behave online and offline. Uh, And often that does mean learning about the online spaces where your kid is hanging out. Like, I did not particularly want to learn about Minecraft. Uh, I did not really want to run a Minecraft server, but I did because, you know, somebody's got to do it. And I'm, I'm the tech mom now. Uh, you know how there's the mom who uh, who brings the cut up oranges to the to the football game, and uh, you know there's the mom who like always, you know, organizes school fundraisers or whatever. Like, I'm the tech mom. I'm the mom who sets up the database, who, like, makes sure that all the parents are on the class email list. Uh, you know, I'm the, you know, I'm the mom who runs the Minecraft server. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm the tech infrastructure mom. Uh, so there needs to be a tech infrastructure parent uh, because, you know, kids need that. Mm. Like they, they need it in order to facilitate their lives. Uh, there's a scholar named Rachel Quo who is at UNC right now, uh, who does all of this really interesting work about social movements and infrastructure, and what is the invisible labor 
the infrastructure that enables social movements. So it's things like making sure everybody is on the mailing list, uh, mm-hmm. you know, keeping the databases up to date, uh, picking up the flyers at the printer. It's invisible labor. It's sometimes labeled as women's work, but it's incredibly important. Uh, and it's incredibly important to social movements. So when you think about your parenting responsibilities in the real world, you can think about, okay, how does that translate to the digital world? And what are the kind of annoying things that I'm going to have to learn as a parent uh, digitally, as well as what are the kinds of annoying things I'm going to have to learn as a parent <laughs> in the real world? I, yeah, I read this. Uh, I remember reading this essay by an acade- British academic called James Bridle about U- YouTube videos and um, and AI and how these sort of permutations of children's videos where they kind of invent a new iteration with new words that just sort of skip through the dictionary. They were getting darker and darker and darker. Um, and it was all because of like, like, you know, so new content could be uploaded um, regularly to kind of get ad revenue and stuff. But like the actual content itself was unregulated and it was unchecked and, you know, pe- you know, it would operate on a, it would just start playing, you know, on an autoplay thing. So you find the first one, which is like about a sheep and a pony, and then like it gets darker and darker and darker, and, and like how stuff like that is really terrifying at the moment. Oh yeah, don't. I, that is my one piece of digital parenting advice: do not trust the YouTube algorithm at all, and do not let your kids like go and watch whatever the hell they want on YouTube. Yeah. Like it's a just don't do just don't do it. Yeah. When they're I, little. I don't want the. I don't want them to watch Paw Patrol and then two hours later end up being red-pilled by PewDiePie. That would be, that would not be good. Yeah, because um, that's how it happens. Like, yeah, you know, give them DVDs. I mean, it's it's old technology, but they know how to operate a DVD player. And they can yeah. push the buttons and it's fun to push the buttons. And then, like, it's just the one thing on the DVD. Uh Okay, so my final question, final two questions. Uh, first is like the the memoir that uh, that inspired this podcast and the podcast. The question that I ask all my guests is the question that's sort of at the heart of the the memoir is how do we raise our kids to be joyful and boundless in a world that feels so bleak that I feel so that I feel so sad and angry about. And I I wondered if that's something that you ha- you had any thoughts on when it comes to raising your own kid. I find a lot of joy in parenting. And I think that the way that I raise my kid with joy is that I tune out the other stuff. I try to just be with him when we're together. And I just appreciate the hell out of him. Like, I love my kid. I love being with him. I love watching him grow up. And when I stay immersed in that joy and I let the other things fade into the background, I think that's how I hold on to the joy of parenting. And that's, I think that's how I raise him in a joyful manner. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. And final, finally, what is the best advice you've ever received as a parent and what's the most useless advice you've ever received as a parent? Ooh, those are good questions. So one of the things I love about parenting advice is when it's highly specific. 
uh, when it's stuff like, okay, when you are, uh, oh God, the examples that are coming to mind are all about potty training. That's, uh, that's not a good one. <laughs> um, let me, uh, let me come up with something that's more, uh, all right, maybe I should do the most useless advice. Yeah, go for it, go for it. <laughs> Uh, I think the most useless advice comes when uh, when people who I don't know very well start uh, start telling me stuff that I already know, and then I get very bored and I just kind of tune out and I'm just like, oh yeah 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 yeah. Um, so for example, uh, I run a uh, a Facebook group for uh, New York City school admissions, and I am. And so I think a lot about school admissions and then sometimes people who I don't know will, you know, will start telling me about school admissions and I'm like, have you met me? (laughs) (laughs) If you took like even 30 seconds to, uh, to learn like how much I think about this, then maybe you would not be trying to mansplain, uh, (laughs) school stuff to me. Um, so useless advice is stuff that I already know when people are not picking up on these subtle cues that I already know this and I'm totally bored hearing about it. Um, so the bet, I will tell you the best, uh, marital advice I ever got, which is double sinks. Somebody I used to work with, uh, was talking about somebody else in the office who was getting married and they said, Oh, the best advice I can give is, have a bathroom where you have two sinks so you don't have to fight over sink etiquette. And I was like, what the hell? Like, why would you have two sinks? And then one time we went on vacation. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And there were two sinks, and I was like, oh, this is great. (laughs) So I think about that when I think about uh, it's important to have your own space in a married couple. And I think also it's important to have your own space as a kid. 
So my parents were really good about leaving us alone as kids. And it gave me a lot of time to daydream and a lot of time to invent secret languages and, uh, and kind of think my own thoughts. And so I think that it's important for kids to have privacy. Uh, and I think this is especially important in the digital world. So I have this one friend who, uh, has her kid under surveillance. Like she got that video monitor when the kid was a baby and now the mm. kid's like five and she like still watches the kid on the video monitor. And I'm like, that's, oh that's kind of some cop shit. That's like that's, yeah, that's pretty invasive. So like, you know, leave your kid alone. Like once they, like once you're not worried about them, like, you know, with SIDS and everything, like give them some privacy. Don't use the digital stuff to monitor their every move. Meredith Broussard, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much to Meredith for joining me today. Uh, she was just such a brilliant person to talk to. I love talking to Meredith. She's funny and so smart and just makes me feel more hopeful. Um, please buy our books. That goes without saying, but it needs to be said still. My book is available wherever you buy your books. I cast no judgment on when people buy their books. Uh, is wherever's easiest for you. That is fine with me. Um, and yes, thank you to Acast uh, and to Bluebird and to Meredith and to Meredith's publisher and to you, the listeners, for coming back week after week. Uh, this podcast is free so please please tell your friends rate us and like and subscribe and all that kind of stuff and um you know get other people to sign up especially people who are about to begin their parenting journeys have begun their parenting journeys whatever it may be it would just be really great if you could help spread the word i'm taking some time off social media at the moment so i can't do all of the like yammering on about this sorry for all the drilling noise at the start of the episode um and yeah hopefully I will see you next week. I've got an episode with one of my favourite people, Simon Mir. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye, my brown babies. Goodbye, my brown babies. I love you, my brown babies, so much.